Welcome to Plodcast, episode 57. Good to have you. Good to have you here. So uh, a little while, a few weeks ago, I wrote um, an, uh, a blog post for uh, my blog, Blog and May Blog, uh, on a wife deciding to leave her husband. And I, uh, it was a fairly long letter, and it, it had to do with principles of justice on the one hand, and uh, on the other hand, a particular understanding of what Paul urges in First, in first Corinthians. So what happens in the Old Testament? There's a law that says that basically if a runaway slave shows up on your doorstep, um, the law was you are not permitted to return the runaway slave. The law prohibited returning a runaway slave. Now, incidentally, this um, addresses our own American history, which tells you for all the people who argued scripturally that, well, the Bible allows for slavery, the Bible allows for slavery, which under certain specified conditions it did. Uh, If the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case had been uh, arguing biblically, if they'd been reasoning biblically, they would have uh, determined that the Bible says that when a slave runs away, you're not permitted to return that slave. Now, this is interesting because the Bible requires in many, in multiple areas, that before you can admit a charge against someone, before you can accuse someone of murder, before you can accuse them of rape or whatever, you need two or three witnesses. You need independent confirmation in order to convict someone of a crime. But if the slave uh, shows up on your doorstep and says, my master has been abusing me horribly and I don't want to go back, the, the law of God said you may not return him. You may not send him back. At the same time, a different set of laws would prevent you from going to the master and charging him with the crime of abusing a slave. You may not convict the master of abusing the slave unless you have two and three witnesses, unless you have independent confirmation. Uh, but you don't need that independent confirmation to give refuge to the slave. If someone's taking refuge at your house, you don't need two and three witnesses in order to give them that, that, um, that place of refuge. Now, I, I uh, applied this reasoning in my post to um, a runaway wife, a, a wife who's been abused, beat up, um, mistreated, you know, not, um, not treated respectfully at all. And let's say she's your, um, uh, you know, your cousin or someone, someone in the family that you know, and she shows up on your doorstep and says, I can't take it anymore. I, I came here to get away. Uh, can you give me a safe haven? Um, you d- in order to give her a room, in order to take her in, you don't need to hear the husband's side of it. You would need to hear the husband's side of it if you were going to charge him with a crime. If you were going to, if you were going to charge him with beating her up, uh, Proverbs eighteen seventeen would apply. You, one side seems real reasonable until you hear the other side. You you got to hear everybody out. Everybody has to have a an opportunity to face their accuser, answer objections, provide witnesses in their own defense, and and so on. But that uh, that apparently doesn't apply in certain. St- or it applies in a very limited way when you're dealing with someone who's running away. And that led to a discussion of what Paul uh, requires and teaches in 1 Corinthians 
uh, 1 Corinthians 7. And I want to say something um, uh, about that. There's a, there's a famous section in that, in that um, neck of the woods where Paul says, um, and here's the teaching on uh, this is the Lord, not I. And then here's what I would teach, I, not the Lord. Now, a number of people have tripped over this because they think it's they think it is Paul disclaiming inspiration for that part. In other words, the Lord is talking through me here, the Lord, not I. But now at this point, I'm just giving you my own personal advice. Uh, this is this is I, not the Lord. I don't think that that's what Paul is doing there at all. Um, you have to realize that when Jesus taught on marriage and divorce, um, we see we see his teaching there in Matthew 19, for example. Um, uh, the Lord is um, teaching Jews about the marriage covenant among the Jews, that is, among covenant believers. Um, so if you have, and, and so uh, what you have are the, the one exception that Jesus gives in that case is porneos, anyone who divorces his wife except for porneos, and marries another is committing adultery or causes his wife who has to remarry uh, in order to provide for herself. He's causing her to be adulterated. He's causing her to be uh, contaminated by putting her away unlawfully. So Jesus is talking about covenant members. Jesus is talking about covenant members, and he says, whoever divorces except for perneas in this circumstance, um, that's it's adultery. It's tantamount to adultery. Now, when Paul uh, is writing 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a church that's in the pagan city of Corinth, which was a, uh, a famously licentious town. And when the Gentile world mission had gone out, when Paul and others had, uh, had done, uh, gone out into the, into the Roman, Greco-Roman world preaching the gospel, one of the first things that started to happen was uh, we started to see, we started to... Um, uh, have to deal with pastorally mixed marriages, uh, where you had uh, a pagan spouse and a Christian spouse. That was not commonplace in Palestine. That was not commonplace in Judea. That was not commonplace in Galilee, where Jesus was teaching. So it was a new situation, basically. Um, so I think that in Corinthians, when Paul says, the Lord, not I, he is simply applying the Lord's teaching from his earthly, the Lord in his earthly ministry, what the Lord taught, what the Lord laid down in the Gospels, Paul is applying straight across. Okay, in these situations, what Jesus said applies. Then Paul moved into a new situation, the, that new situation being a mixed marriage where there was a pagan and a believer uh, married together. Uh, reading through 1 Corinthians is like listening to one half of a phone conversation. Um, it's, it's as though the Corinthians had a long laundry list of questions that they uh, wrote to Paul, and then Paul just works through the questions one by one. And uh, one of the questions was, is it a sin to sleep with a pagan? Is it a sin to have sex with a pagan? Uh, the pagan's my husband. Uh, should I abstain from relations with him? Paul says, no, you should not abstain from relations with a pagan uh, husband, and you should remain married to a pagan husband. And he says, provided that that husband is sun yudikeo, that that husband is pleased to be together with. So 
a, a wife should not separate from her husband simply because he doesn't believe in Jesus or simply because he's a devotee of Zeus. That's not grounds for divorce. It's not grounds for, div- to, to, for divorce to leave your spouse because they're not a Christian, because they're not a believer. Uh, now, um, Paul says, so that, that's what Paul says, I, not the Lord. He's not saying my part is uninspired and what I quoted above is inspired. He's saying the Lord's dominical teaching is inspired and authoritative, and what I'm telling you now is apostolic and equally authoritative. Um, so when you're dealing with covenant marriage to believers, basically when you're dealing with two believers, the, the allowance for divorce and remarriage is porneos, unfaithfulness, adultery. When you're dealing with a mixed marriage and the pagan, if the unbeliever leaves, deserts you, is not pleased to be together with, then um, you are the, the believer, Paul says, is not bound in such circumstances. Paul is extending biblical principles, biblical law into new territory. That's what he's doing. Now, he then says, and this, is the, this was uh, a key part of this particular uh, post, he then says, uh, a wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she needs to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So there is a middle ground. There's a situation where uh, if the pagan spouse just deserts, leaves, I, don't want, I never want to see you again, goodbye, I divorce you. Uh, Paul says the believer is not bound in such circumstances. But there are situations where an unbeliever or someone who's hostile to God can make life absolutely miserable and intolerable for someone. And Paul is saying to the, the, a wife in that situation, I'm... Um, my recommendation is that you try to stick it out. But if you can't stick it out and you, and you leave, then your options are to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your spouse. Um, so this would, be biblical, this would be biblical grounds for uh, a separation with no option of remarriage um, on, the other, uh, on the other side of it. So there you go. So we come to um, the book review section of uh, our podcast, episode 57. And um, this week I want to review, I want to talk about uh, The Principles of War uh, by my father, Jim Wilson. Uh, This book was written, first it was a series of articles for Christian Magazine, and then it was assembled into a uh, small book back in the 1960s, I think 64. And... uh, it has been something of an underground classic ever since. It's, uh, it's been in print one way or another uh, since that time. And, uh, and what my father did, my, my father was a graduate of the Naval Academy, class of 50, and he um, also went to um, uh, the War College and uh, was a naval officer for a number of years. What he did is he took the principles of war that he learned uh, the sort of things that you would learn from Clausewitz or Sun Tzu. Um, he took the principles of war, which would be things like mobility, objective, surprise, economy of force, concentration. You know, these are principles of warfare. What he did is he took these principles and he applied them to uh, strategic evangelism. How, how do the principles of warfare apply to spiritual warfare? How do the principles of warfare apply to spiritual warfare? Now, 
uh, it's important to distinguish at the outset that principles of war are uh, not the same thing as methods of warfare. So you could have uh, two armies uh, armed with rocks, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, like tribe of Benjamin armed with rocks where they all have slingers and they, they, they throw these stones the size of uh, softballs. Um, you could have armies armed that way. The slings or the spears or the catapults or the, the bows and arrows that they used or the chariots are all methods of warfare. They're weapons. So the methods of warfare are one thing. Principles of war are another. Principles of war are constant. So in every conflict, every military conflict from the very first one to the very last one, uh, there will be um, these principles of war applied and one side's going to apply them better than the other side does. And the side that applies them, barring some uh, fluke or intervention from uh, some act of God, barring something like that, the one that's, that is remembering the principles of war is going to be the victorious side. So, um, and it's tempting when, when, a, when an army or a navy has a super weapon of some sort to rely on the weaponry instead of the principles. So, for example, um, uh, one of the principles is communication, which would include your supply lines. And our, uh, Napoleon said that an army marches on its stomach, and you, which uh, was a principle that he neglected, incidentally, in the invasion of Russia. Um, so if you cut the enemy's supply line, you're, you're cutting their food supply. So uh, you could have a... Uh, an army that's that is not um, not well equipped. They don't have fancy uniforms. They don't have high tech gear. But if they observe the principles of warfare, and the and the and the sophisticated army doesn't observe the principles of warfare, the principles generally will prevail over uh, technique. So um, uh, the, the principles of war are things like mobility, surprise, concentration, uh, communication objective and and so on. So what my dad did is he took these principles of war and he uh, describes them, defines each principle, and then shows how that principle applies to um, how that principle applies to spiritual conflict, to the task of evangelizing a city, the task of evangelizing um, a college campus and and so on. So um, let me give you just one uh, illustration that that uh, I'll just conclude with this, and this explains why so many of us are out in Moscow, Idaho, um, doing our thing here. Why, you know, why Idaho? Why there? Uh, my dad decided. I think it was back in the '60s, maybe in the '70s, he, when he decided that uh, in military affairs there's a there's a thing called the decisive point. A decisive point is uh, a target that is simultaneously strategic and feasible. So if you take it, it will matter to the enemy. Uh, it will hurt the enemy badly if you take it. And it's possible to take. Um, to ramp it up even further, if you take it, the war is over. Or if you take it, the battle is over. That's a decisive point. So um, uh, evangelistically speaking, if we took New York City for Jesus, or if we captured Los Angeles for Jesus, that would be strategic, but it's not feasible. Right? It's, we don't have the resources to, uh, to take 
those cities um, with some sort of massive spiritual invasion. Uh, New York City is strategic, but not feasible. On the other hand, if we, um, if we all went out to Beauville, Idaho, uh, for those uh, listening at a distance, Beauville, Idaho is a, is a bend in the road, oh, maybe 50 miles east of us here. So Beauville is a little tiny town. Uh, we could take Beauville for Jesus in, inside of a couple of weeks. All we'd have to do is get people to move there, get uh, a sufficient number of people to move there, and there, there, we, there we'd be. Unfortunately, Beauville would be, is feasible, but not strategic. Uh, it's feasible to take, but it doesn't matter if you take it. So um, New York City would matter if you take it, but you can't take it. Uh, Beauville, uh, you could take, but it doesn't matter. <coughs> so um, my dad decided that, um, that in the North American lay of the land, the decisive points, evangelistically speaking, were uh, major universities in small towns. Uh, the small town made it feasible. The major university made it strategic. The major university made it important, and the small town made it feasible. Long story short, he found out that Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington were two small towns, eight miles apart, and each one had a major university um, in them. He, my dad felt like he'd fallen into a chocolate pie, and so he moved here. Uh, I, I finished up high school, um, and uh, as soon as I was done with high school back east, uh, we uh, piled in the car and drove out here, and then I went in the Navy, uh, and then after my hitch in the Navy, I came here to go to school, and by that time, a lot of things were already percolating. The name of the game is, if you're uh, basically, if you're observing the principles of war, uh, you're going to have a disproportionate impact. Uh, the, uh, the throw weight of your weapons, the firepower of your weapons, the horsepower of your tanks um, are going to be amplified, are going to be multiplied if you're observing the principles of war. Uh, Canon Press publishes uh, this book, and, and you can get it through Canon, Principles of War uh, by Jim Wilson. It is one of those books that I, uh, I've resolved to be reading and rereading and rereading um, for the rest of my life. It's just, it really is a classic and deserves to be. So the verb hamartano is used twice in the book of Hebrews. The first time refers to the sinning of the Hebrews in the wilderness, the sinning of the Jews in the wilderness, with the early Christians being warned not to do the same thing. That's in Hebrews 3.17. So they were sinning in the wilderness, and uh, Hebrews 3, also 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3, are both um, taking the um, apostolic period as being uh, the antitype of the type of the Jews in the of the Jews in the wilderness. So, in brief, um, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. At the end of that 40 years uh, in the wilderness, they invaded Canaan. Uh, during their time in the wilderness, they were tested in various ways. There was a leadership challenge uh, with the, son, the sons of Korah, the rebellion. There was murmuring over food challenge that resulted in manna and the quail being dropped on them and so on. So the people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus was executed around 30 AD 
uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, which means that you, you have another 40-year period. The, just as the Mosaic leadership was solidified and established in the 40-year period, period, so the apostolic leadership was solidified and established in the 40-year uh, period. And there were re rebellions against the apostles, just as there had been rebellion uh, against Moses. And the, and the people of God were challenged or tempted in, uh, uh, in that 40-year period as well. And so 1 Corinthians 10 draws this typology explicitly. Uh, Hebrews 3 does the same thing explicitly. Don't, uh, you Christians of the first century, don't you do what your elder brothers, the Jews, did when they were in a parallel situation after they had been delivered from Egypt. So uh, Hamartano is uh, used once in Hebrews 3.17 to that effect. The second use tells us that if we sin willfully, by going back to the old sacrifices, after we've received knowledge of the truth, that there is only, now only one sacrifice for sin, there is no more sacrificial efficacy back in Jerusalem where we are attempting to go, but only the expectation of a Roman siege followed by destruction and fire. So that's in Hebrews 10.26. So if we sin willfully, uh, now it's easy to take this out of context and say uh, a preacher could grab uh, Hebrews 10.26 and say, to a group of Christians, have any of you sinned willfully ever? And all the guilty heads bow. And uh, did you sin willfully after you received the knowledge of the gospel, after you received the knowledge of the truth? And everybody nods miserably because they can see this is not going in a good place. Um, and so the preacher says, you sinned willfully after you've received the knowledge of the truth. No more sacrifice for sin remains for you, uh, you better go home, go find another religion, go do something else. Uh, everybody could feel pretty kicked around by that, but that's, uh, that's not what the book of Hebrews is talking about. That's not what the book of Hebrews is talking about at all. Um, remember, the whole book is written to Jews who are on the threshold of going back to Judaism. Jesus had predicted that the temple was going to be flattened, the temple was going to be leveled within one generation. The, um, that happened in 70 AD. Uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Hebrews is written uh, in the early to mid-60s. Uh, the fighting broke out between the Jews and the Romans in 68. Uh, so let's say, let's say the book of Hebrews is written in 65 or so. Um, Imagine the book of Hebrews as a conversation between an Orthodox pastor on a dock trying to talk to a Jewish Christian, trying to persuade him to not get on the ship that is going back to Jerusalem. If you sin willfully by going back to the old sacrifices, after we've received knowledge of the truth that there's only one sacrifice for sins, there's no more sacrificial efficacy back in Jerusalem where you're going, no more sacrifice for sin exists back there. Why? Glory, because Jesus died once for all. It's not, that the, it's not that there's no hope for you. It's that you're walking away from your only possible hope. And when you get on the, and when you get on the boat to sail back to Jerusalem, you're doing so in a masterpiece of bad timing because the only thing you're going to, you're, you're going to get back to Jerusalem and you're not going to find efficacious sacrifice for sin there. What you are going to find is an expectation of judgment, which Jesus predicted, and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God, and which did. God.
You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.